Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is the incredible Anna DeVere Smith. She is an actor, playwright, educator, scholar, basically one of the most accomplished human beings in all of American theater. In fact, she sort of created a form of theater. Her plays are a bit like documentaries. She conducts interviews, collects stories, and presents her findings on stage, usually in the form of a solo act. 30 years ago, she premiered her play, Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992. To prepare, Anna interviewed over 300 people about the Rodney King beating and its aftermath. Police, bystanders, jurors, Angelinos from all different backgrounds. And then she turned their words, their actual verbatim words, into a show. In the original production, Anna played every part, representing each person as closely as she could. And I honestly don't think that it is a stretch to say that Twilight Los Angeles 1992 was one of the most important stage productions of the 20th century. Now, 30 years later, that show has made its return to Los Angeles at the Mark Taper Forum, where it first premiered in 1993. This time around, Twilight isn't a solo act, There's a cast of five, different ages, genders, and races. Each one plays some of the characters that Anna played 30 years ago. Let's start things off with a clip from a filmed production of Twilight Los Angeles 1992. It was shot for PBS back in 2001. In this scene, Anna DeVere Smith recreates a speech given by Congresswoman Maxine Waters. It's a message to President George H.W. Bush about the persistent discrimination that black men face in the United States. Mr. President, we want our black men back on America's agenda. They've been dropped off of everybody's statistics and data. They're not in school. They're not employed. They don't live anywhere. They go from grandmama to mama to girlfriend. And Mr. President, not everybody in the street is a thug or a hood. Not everybody is a criminal. And if they are, Mr. President, then what about your violation? Oh, yes, I'm angry. We are angry. The fact of the matter is, whether we like it or not, riot was the voice of the unheard. Anna DeBeer Smith, I'm so happy to have you on Bullseye. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So, um, when you started preparing to to create this new version of your show, did you watch tape of the old one? Um, well, first of all, the show that I did 30 years ago at the Mark Taper Forum, Twilight was not recorded as far as I know. It could have been, but I don't remember that. I made a movie um, that was aired in 2020, but no, I did not look at that when I did the revision of the text for five people. Was it a choice not to record it at the time? You know, they may have recorded it. I don't, I just don't remember. 
if they did or not. And I didn't call the taper at any rate when I was revising the show because I rev- I, the, the show was revised for the Signature Theater in New York. And um, then as a result of that revision, the taper invited me to do it in Los Angeles, this revision. Were you worried to revise it? No, it was my choice. Why did you choose that? Um, Signature Theater in New York City invited me to be one of their resident artists. And uh, Paige Evans was the artistic director. And we had a conversation. You know, everything pre-COVID is hard to track. Um, But well before COVID, she and I uh, had a conversation about which of my works would be done at the Signature Theater. The Signature Theater does works of playwrights, works that have, among other things, they invite playwrights to be resident artists, established playwrights, and do some of their previous work and then invite them to write a new play. So as part of my residency, we produced, or uh, Paige produced Fires in the Mirror, uh, a play which I did in 1991 in New York at the Public Theater and then regionally and in London. And that play was redone, revised for part of my residency. And then um, I decided with Paige to do Twilight and I was going to revise it for several actors. And that's so that's a conversation that happened in, oh, 2017, 2018, something like that. And that production would have been in 2020, but because of COVID, it was postponed and not done until 2021. So, in other words, this, so this was something that was in the works for some time, which was to. Uh, revised the play for five actors. Now, the play had already been intended to be done other than as one person shows, but I think people tended to think of my work in that one way as a one-person show. So this opportunity, therefore, for me to be involved in a production, which would make it clear that the work is meant to be done in any size cast, was an opportunity that I was really excited about. What do you think is different when it's performed by a group of people rather than performed by a single person? And when that single person is you? Well, I guess the, well, it's different. It's different because it's more than one person. Um, It's different because every actor brings their own humanity um, to what they're doing. I recall meeting years ago, very very quickly, like backstage, the uh, Hélène Sixou, the French intellectual Hélène Sixou, and talking about actors. And she said, well, first of all, an actor has to have a soul. And so any actor is going to have bring a different soul, a different humanity, a different kind of interpretation to the work. So that's number one. And then number two, I haven't directed it, but I think that probably directing wise it might be more interesting um to have five people up there than just one i mean i think there i haven't seen the new production which is going to be here in la soon as we talk um but one of the things that i imagine must be different is that part of seeing you do the show solo is that the entire thing is is colored by a certain kind of virtuosity, right? 
And that could be, I mean, it's amazing to see, but I could also see it, you know, I, I could also see it changing things in ways that you might not prefer. You know what I mean? Well, um, there's a element of virtuosity as well for the cast of five. I don't, haven't done the math of how many characters they're each playing, but they're each playing several different individuals, and those individuals are all very different. And I'm sure if you were to ask them, they would agree that they're getting a workout, <laughs> even though um, even though there's five of them. I will say, and Paige knows I say this all the time because I think it's hilarious, um, with any nonprofit theater, you have to kind of have it, you have to have an argument for anything you want because of the economy. Uh, and, uh, you know, when we talked about Fires in the Mirror, I wanted her to hire two actors. And she said, no, no, we can't afford that. And uh, she said about Twilight, she said, well, of course we have to have more than one for that because who would be able to learn all those lines? <laughs> Which is <laughs> very funny <laughs> to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> having that been the case of, of my work for so long. Um, yeah, so I think that, 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 that there is, I don't know that virtuosity disappears, right? Because there still is this challenge of being able to make feasible, if not realistic, people who are obviously very different from the actor's uh, and the persona of the actors to try to make a different persona. I mean, I think part of what's interesting to me about it is you have a cast of people of different genders and races. It's a show that's substantially about race, but you can't represent everyone that you're representing in the show one-to-one -one still. So it's sort of like a very different kind of equation of how you are representing each of these individual people. Yes, and I don't think it would be interesting as an art form if it were one-to-one. -one. I mean, I could imagine that there's a director, uh, maybe from opera, actually, who could think of a way to make that interesting. I think what part of the, the dramaturgy of it is transitions. What do you mean by that? A part of the dramaturgy is the idea that um, identity will change. I mean, that's a given in any uh, in what drama is, right? An actor plays whatever character, even probably if they were to play themselves in a different time in their lives, it's not themselves right now in this moment. Um, so, but part of the dramaturgy of this is that people are playing more than one role. Now, having said that, the first show that I made this way based on interviews and verbatim interviews I did in New York in the early 80s and I had 20 actors to play 20 real people um, and nobody had anything in common I just walked up to people on the streets of New York basically and said if you give me an hour of your time I'll invite you to see yourself performed so I talked to the lifeguard at the 60th Third Street. Why I talked to Meredith Monk, the great composer, lot to twenty people for twenty people who resembled them. Uh, but back then, I was really looking at um, specifically things having to do with language and identity. It eventually became this other form. So you could have a show like that, but because I eventually made. Uh, 
shows that were on one body, then this aspect that you call virtuosity does become relevant. How did you learn how to ask people to go along with this? Not actors. I'm sure actors you were offering jobs to and they were grateful. <laughs> but uh, when you go up to and talk to somebody and say, on this, whether it's on the street or in an email, what do you say to somebody that convinces them to be part of one of these projects? Um, well, the beginning was a different era, you know, the 1980s, um, you know, different era, different technology. So you have to imagine a world with no email, um, certainly no social media. Uh, however, it was a, a world in which something like Interview Magazine had been out for a couple of years and uh, people had the opportunity to see how interesting real people were. Uh, the talk show had taken off in a different way where um, you maybe not always saw famous people. So I think people were curious about it and said, Sure, and sat down. Um, and in that way, I don't think I'm any different than folks like, say, Studs Terkel, who had a big effect on me, Chicago journalist, the late Studs Terkel, um, uh, the musicologist Alan Lomax. So I think people were willing to sit down because they saw it as getting your picture taken kind of thing, like a photographer coming up and saying, can I take your picture? What has changed is that after Fires in the Mirror, um, in particular, I pretty much limit that, the work that I do, to real events uh, around which communities have concerns and a lot to say. So <laughs> they want to be heard uh, because they want to make, they want to, they, they want to set the record straight for what they saw, uh, or they want to try to make sense of something like the Los Angeles riots, which was just stunning to some people. And they, most people said yes, because they wanted to talk about it. I, I talked to 320 people to write Twilight. Even more with Anna DeVere Smith after a quick break. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. My guest, Anna DeVere Smith, created and starred in the one-person show Twilight Los Angeles, 1992. A new production of Twilight with a five-person cast is currently running at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. Now, like I've read um, Working, just Studs Terkel's famous book, and I used to listen to him on public radio back when in, in, his, in his later years. And if I imagine myself being a, a bookkeeper or whatever, being interviewed for Studs Terkel's working, and then seeing my descriptions of what I do in my work down on a piece of paper, I'm aware that they're being edited, and Studs Terkel is very gift, was very gifted at that, obviously. But it is a pretty literal... It would feel, I think, to me, relatively literal, even though taken as read, it's not actually. Um, when I think of someone performing as me, that feels pretty different to me, even if my words are exactly the same, just as they are in Studs Terkel's book. So what do you tell people about that part of it? Or do they ask? Um, I don't usually have to go that far. 
honestly. Um, you know, listen, for for in the case of, you know, what what's also very important is, you know, what are the conditions that you're doing in this? By the way, you know, of course, that working became a Broadway show, right? Yeah, okay. I do. That's true. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so... And and you I'm, know of I'm course ready that, to produce I'm ready to produce the Broadway show of the glory of their times the book about old timey baseball players That's and you know that one. Studs was a you know a persona and a character in Chicago I I got to know him and you know I go out to dinner with Studs I mean you could not walk down the street without people coming up to him and talking to him and stuff like that so I I don't know how relevant that was but. Um, in the case of Los Angeles, and in the case also of Fires in the Mirror, before anybody knew what I did at all, um, the driving force is people want to talk about what happened. And then there's a release that shows, you know, defines what, I'm, you know, explains what I'm going to do. Um, I would say by the time we get to maybe my play about presidents. Some people knew what I do. But the driving the driving energy is finding people who want to talk. That's really the driving energy. And then I explain what I'm going to do. But I would say the most important thing is that they, they want to talk. And I do not interview people who don't want to talk. Um, and if I sit down to an interview and I can see that they don't want to, then I stopped the interview in, in you know, as, as uh, gracious a way as I can. And that is because what is required to be on stage, which is different than to be in the New York Times or um, in journalism, is a really strong will to communicate. In order for someone's language, gestural behavior to end up in the on that stage, which anticipates a drama, they have to have had uh, want they want the world to know. I say that I'm looking for the people who have something to say. They would scream it from a mountaintop, and I just happen to be walking by. So that's really the driving energy about the project. Did this work? Is this work stage work because you? went to acting college and were an actor and that's just what you were up to. And so when you had ideas about this stuff, it naturally translated into the thing you were already doing. Or do you feel like you specifically chose this over pointing a camera at somebody, for example? Um, well, it was a process. Uh, it started out of questions that I had from going to school to train as an actress at the American Conservatory Theater, no longer, uh, but uh, where I got my MFA when it existed. And I had a lot of questions about what is this magical thing of certain kinds of language actually cause someone to change in front of your eyes. And I was fascinated with that and really wanted to get down to the nitty gritty of what that was. And the only way I could end up talking about it was, what's the relationship of language to identity? So I would say that it came out of that question. And originally, you know, I just started interviewing people. And as I mentioned, with that first project that I did, it was an actor and a real person. 
I probably would have continued in that way and worked to have an acting company that would, for example, you know, go to a certain, go to a war zone or come to the Los Angeles, uh, come to Los Angeles after the uprising and have a whole squadron of people sort of descend and make um, such a production. But um, after the first one that I made, I said to myself, well, I, I don't, how will I pay everybody? And I remembered that as a kid, I had been a mimic. And I thought, well, for while I'm still trying to teach myself how to do this, I'll just play all the parts. Um, and that's really the practical reason that became that it became one woman. But my cause or my 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 intention was to try to learn more about this mystery, this magic that you could actually say something and give the illusion that you're somebody other than yourself. And I thought, maybe this has something in common with prayers or chants or, you know, <laughs> you know, witches concoctions. I mean, that's sort of where I was originally coming from. And then, uh, then I, and then I ultimately shaped it into what it, what it became. But like a lot of, a lot of creative processes, you know, you don't, you don't really know where you're headed. I mean, I think the main ingredient is, do you have a, do you have a big enough question? Do you have a strong enough question? And your question was the relationship between language and identity? That, and also because of the era in which I was trained, which was the seventies, um, I was, you know, as a young black woman concerned about stereotypes and one of the things that seemed to me that caused stereotypes is, well, some stereotypes, just bad will, but others, a lack of specificity. So along the same time that I was developing what then I got credited for as having created a new form of theater, I was teaching and I was always trying to get my students to be more interesting in terms of how they sounded. So, you know, this was like a, it was a, a project that had at its center Real questions. I have a question about how you sound. You're from Baltimore. Did you ever use those kind of, um, I think the right word is diphthong. I'm not a linguist, but the compound vowels that you hear Baltimoreans use sometimes, where one vowel sound, what would sound like one vowel sound out of my San Francisco mouth, sounds like a couple of them uh, strung or mixed together. Well, this is generalization, but I think for the most part, um, and I left Baltimore in, in the 70s. I mean, I've, I've gone back to visit my family, but for the most part, I think those would be Caucasian Baltimoreans and not black Baltimoreans. And so for most of my youth, I grew up around black people who did not have that accent. When I went to college, um, people thought I sounded Southern, um, so if I had an accent, which got drummed out of me in acting school, I don't think they do that anymore. They used to talk about something called standard English, standard American, standard American. Um, uh, it was affected by African-American culture and not about by Baltimore in general. Was Do you think that you were particularly aware of your manner of speech not just because you went on to become an actor as a, you know, as a college student and graduate student, but because um, you had to be very aware of the, 
uh, racial and cultural coding of how you talked? That's a really complex question. Um, I think the matter of the coding probably changed, started to, or I started to be aware that how I spoke could be other than probably all the way back to junior high school, um, being, you know, suddenly in an uh, integrated environment and uh, a little bit in high school. And in high school, having my brother accuse me of trying to sound white, right? So <laughs> I, th I think your your question is all about language and identity. And, you know, I was curious, too, about why aren't we all more original in terms of how we sound? Why do we sound just like our family? Now, there is actually such a thing as an identical twin in sound. The late Lonnie Guineer had a sister who was not her twin, but who sounded exactly like her. And I met her sister, you know, just like in a lobby of a performance um, venue. And I was, it was really eerie to actually hear two people who sound exactly alike. Um, so uh, that's, you know, I wonder why that is. It's so strong, our natural mimicry, and therefore it also, you call it coding, but it, it's also a form of how we show which tribe we're in, right? It's like wearing certain colors in a way. Uh, accents, rhythms, slang. Um, the Brits, of course, have this different level of speaking that uh, I know people who can do that, that reveal um, social class. So what is that all about? Why do we organize ourselves that way? What do you notice when you're talking to someone uh, for one of your theater pieces? What are you paying attention to? Well, I'm listening to hear when the way they speak changes, when the rhythms of their speech change, when the uh, they change volume. I'm waiting for them to get excited enough about what they're saying that they may start to perform. Um, there's a person in, uh, in Twilight who did exactly that. When I was already on stage, someone came backstage uh, to, the, to, to me at the Mark Taper Forum and said, you have to talk to my friend who was a juror in the second trial. People may have forgotten, and certainly people who weren't born or were quite young in, in the 90s uh, may not know that there was more than one trial with regard to the police officers who had beaten Rodney King. There was the first trial, which came back with all officers not guilty, and that's why uh, there was the uprising or the riot or the revolution, um, as you might want to call it, uh, or the events in L.A., as some called it, I think to avoid giving it any, any specific characteristic. And then George Bush Sr. Uh, called for a federal trial. And the juror that this particular audience member felt I should talk to had been in that had been one of the jurors in that second trial. And so they actually drove her up from further south in California and and she started to actually perform what had happened in the jury room, right? So it was like amazing. It was sort of the absolute perfect example of everything I've been trying to learn about language. So what happens when a person has something to say and it and they're so eager to give you really paint the picture that they actually get up out of their chair and on their feet 
and show you what happened without without me asking that. And that's what Maria, um, juror number seven, I think it was, what she did. Bertolt Brecht, uh, the German dramatist, has written had written a essay called Street Scene that I learned about much long you know a long time after I started working the way I did and he 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 writes about how if a if you go out into the street and there's a car accident and you ask someone to tell you you know what happened that they will immediately create a kind of theater to let you know what happened because what had happened is bigger than words themselves can express so um my goal when I'm listening to people is when will they stop sounding like it's something that could be written on a page. When is it bigger than what could be written on a page? Then that's what, you know, that's what belongs on stage. But do you mean that, like, the goal on stage is to capture literally the externalities, the sound of the voice, the way that someone moves in the same way that you are literally capturing the exact words that they said? Uh, or is it about, you know, uh, is it synecdoche where something <laughs> smaller is associated with something bigger? I get my... Uh, I don't know that one. I think it's You synecdoche. mean the city in New York? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, are, you trying to, uh, are you trying to pick small things to uh, make the bigger thing, or are you trying to be as literal as possible? Are you trying no. to create... That's a great question. You know, are you trying to find points for an impression, um, even if that is not a comic impression? um, Or are you trying to recreate? Well, again, because of the the circumstance in which I'm looking for what I'm trying to find to put on stage, is I think that in certain circumstances, this goes back to street scene of Bertolt Brecht, in certain circumstances and certain conditions, people are stage-worthy. They do something that has aesthetic value, even though they may not know that. But their need to communicate, their need to make sense out of something that is not sensical causes them to become extraordinarily creative. And then to me, that's very beautiful and is something that people will marvel at. And so I put it on stage. And it's also because many of the topics that I address are topics that people may think, well, I heard that before, right? Or I saw that in the news. Well, if it's already in the news, what can I bring that will be different? And so what I can bring is something that has aesthetic value um, and that may cause them to be more emotional, may cause them to pay attention in a different way. And so I think it's uh, sort of like the difference between saying, um, you know, it's, it's like fashion. On the one hand, a lot of fashion is inspired by what a designer may see in the street. Uh, but then there's something that the designer does to that that takes it to another level or um, you know, I don't know how photographers, I haven't had a chance to talk about how photographers think about their work now since everybody can take a picture. But what's a picture? What what makes a Avedon picture or a Gordon Parts picture or a Mary Ellen Mark picture? What makes those pictures pictures that are different than a drawing or a picture that you took in the old days with your Kodak camera, if you see, you see what I'm saying. So I don't think there's anything ultimately... Uh, everyday life 
about what ends up on stage, although I'm in everyday life to find something that I think is aesthetically beautiful. Beautiful is an interesting word to use. It sounded like an advised choice. Why'd you choose beautiful? Well, um, I do find um, speech when people are under duress and trying to rec- sometimes sometimes trying to reclaim their dignity in addition to making sense out of nonsense or out of chaos or to set the record straight, I do find that 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 profound wish to get across, to communicate, to make a connection, to engage. I find that very, very beautiful. We've got more to get into with Anna DeVere Smith when we come back from a quick break. What's it like to play someone on stage, to use their real words verbatim, then have them see themselves in you, in real life? What happens if they don't like it? I asked Anna. She'll tell us in a minute. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. With Max Fun Drive in the books, we'd like to welcome our new members and say thanks to everyone who's supported us over the years. Welcome. Thanks. And now, on to the sticker sale. A lot of this year's drive gifts and live streams focused on food. We love how food can bring communities together, but not everyone has access to the food they need. So we'll split the proceeds from our sticker sale among five U.S. food banks in areas disproportionately affected by poverty. The sale ends Friday, April 14th. Members at the $10 monthly level and above can purchase any stickers they'd like. There's also a special Max Fun sticker featuring Nutsy the Squirrel that all members can purchase. For more info, head to MaximumFun.org slash sticker sale. And thanks again for your support. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I am talking with Anna DeVere Smith. She is a playwright, actor, educator. She has created over a dozen one-person plays, each of which is based on hundreds of interviews. These works include Fires in the Mirror, Let Me Down Easy, and of course, Twilight Los Angeles, 1992. For the first time in 30 years, Twilight has returned to the Mark Taper Forum right here in L.A., It's been updated a bit since its original run. It's no longer a one-person show. Now it has a diverse cast of five. Let's get back into my interview with Anna DeVere Smith, who wrote the play. When I was in middle school, not that long before I probably saw your work for the first time, um, I had this music teacher, like a music appreciation teacher, who played the Steve Reich piece, Different Trains, for us. Mm. And that is now 30 years ago. And in my head since then has been from Chicago, from Chicago to New York. It's this piece that recreates with music the sound of speech, right? Mm-hmm. And I wonder what it's like for you to be watching tape or listening to tape of a conversation that you had with someone intent on recreating the aesthetic part of that conversation and holding on to the the meaning part the story that you're telling and the story that they're telling 
at well, the same time. Well, well first, of, I want to just mention that the minimalist musicians, the work of the minimalist musicians had a huge effect on my work uh, back then in, you know, 1980, uh, the late 70s, 1980, fresh out of school, trying to understand the relationship of language to identity. Um, I happened upon this, uh, like, day-long festival or two-day festival of minimalist music, Meredith Monk, um, uh, Steve Reich. Uh, Steve Reich's music for 18 Musicians has had a huge effect on how I started to think about, the in the process of me thinking about what language is and the music of language. John Adams's work had a, a huge effect on me. So those minimalists, actually, you, you bring up Steve Reich, uh, that the drama inside of that music and the way repetition works and the way that words work um, and the little plays that are sort of um, suggested in that music um, had a big effect. So um, it's interesting that you evoke um, Steve Reich. So now I've lost the, the question you were asking me because I became... The question was, how do you hold those aesthetic things at the same time as you're holding the, the, um, the meaning things and the storytelling things? Well, because there's two different things going on, right? There's writing. There's the writing. So someone, um, somebody's talking to me, and I'm listening for these beautiful architectures that I know they're eventually going to make in the course of an hour. Um, and I also know who I just talked to. Uh, and so I'm already assembling in my mind how these fragments are all going to go together to make a story. And I'm interested in variety of points of view. So I'm, I'm looking for that. So there's all that stuff. And I come into the rehearsal hall always with, you know, much more than can possibly ever be on stage. Say, four hours of first performance, just four hours. And then in the course of discussion with the director and the dramaturgs, I usually like to set up a situation where they're going to argue. I listen to them argue. I go home and I come back with a completely different play. So there's the writing of it. And then it's the learning of it where I'm sitting with another person and I'm learning the words, and as I, as I sort of learn those words and kind of, therefore, am squeezing out this incredible essence in the words, uh, I'm not just learning about that person, but I'm learning a lot about the world that they live in, the world as they see it. And I suppose that's an original thing that I thought could happen if I were to interview people in my own lifetime. Uh, that if somebody were to come across a tape that I, I made, say of the Los Angeles riots, that, that, that the words, even, even if it was just like, you know, two inches of, cause originally I started on these cassette tapes, two inches of tape, that if they paid attention, they would learn, um, the, not just the, the events that happened or the meaning, but something about the essence of how um, this individual who spoke was in the world. So I think that the language that we speak is a testament, not just to us trying to communicate something like, uh, you know, give me a large coffee latte with sweet and low, whatever, but that sometimes those words and the way they come out are uh, like a fossil, really, a fossil of of what happened and and how they lived. Do people come up to you 
and tell you what they think you got wrong? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Um, perfect example is a woman who I perform in, um, in Let Me Down Easy, Ruth Katz, who I didn't even know she'd seen it and came up to me a year or so later and said, I don't have a Long Island accent. <laughs> and then, you know, I went back to work and I worked very hard on her accent, which is from Atlantic City. Um, and she ended up being one of the first characters who ever... So it's me, as I'm a playwright as well as an actor, and here's a character in my play giving me a party. Um, <laughs> uh, the same was the case of Stanley Scheinbaum, former uh, police commissioner, um, gave a uh, gave a party, a opening night party after Twilight thirty years ago, and you even saw that in the film he gave a, a small dinner party to which he even invited the man he'd fired, Daryl Gates. So, um, yeah, they sometimes people tell me, and to me that's a part of the process to go back and listen again and to watch again and to keep working. I, I, you know, look, I can never be them. I can never be them. My One of my colleagues, Richard Schechner, who's among those who created the performance discipline of performance studies, talked to me one time about how an actress is trying her best to, you know, be Medea in a show, say, for example, and she's not, is that not happening, you know, and she's not Medea and, you know, director's telling her it's not Medea and she's so out of sorts that she doesn't feel like herself anymore. So she's not Medea. She's not herself. She's a not, not, which is a double negative, but a positive. And so I understand that I'm only living in the reach, right? I can, I know I can never be anybody. All I can do is reach by trying to pay as much attention as possible uh, to reach this person who is uh, very different, or even when I first sit down with a tape recorder who is a, a stranger, and somehow in the course of learning about them, I feel as though I'm getting closer to what their intentions are, but they may come to the show, as was the case 30 years ago uh, with Twilight, and not even have remembered that I came to their house and sat down with a tape recorder, except that, you know, <laughs> a couple months later, the taper invited them to come to the opening of the show, which was the case. Do you feel scared now that you're going to get it wrong? Um, we can only get it wrong. Uh, I mean, how we live now. Um, I spent the summer um, working uh, with teenage girls young women, because I, I want to know more about how they see the world, and decided I would expand what I do beyond the one-to-one -one interview to actually create labs where I could learn about them. And um, I kept saying over and over to the group of artists who were going with me, a diverse group of artists, uh, we will get it wrong. We can only get it wrong. And so what do you do, given the fact that the likelihood is you're going to say the wrong thing, uh, you're going to get it wrong? Um, well, I think the first thing you do is apologize. But the very important thing that I'm learning about, and I'm taking this from um, my good friend, the 
legal scholar Patricia Williams, given the fact that in particular right now, particular right now, uh, we're so suspicious of one another, then we have to proactively try to to create working environments of goodwill. Um, because we can, I don't know anybody who gets it right. Do you? I, I, I don't. So I, I understand, but I've always understood. I mean, look, I was sort of, I think of a June Jordan poem, uh, it's a poem about my rights, which is all about all the signals she got that she was wrong. You know, she had the wrong hair, the wrong nose, the wrong this, the wrong that. And she had to come to the conclusion that, you know, she wasn't wrong. Well, the many indications from the time I was about five years old that, you know, I got something wrong. So I'm used to the wrongness. And the best thing you can do, uh, given that fact, is to work on ways of engaging in spite of it. Well, here in Los Angeles, I'm getting drowned out by uh, sirens and a police helicopter, which seems a little too on the nose. On the nose. Uh, (laughs) But I'm grateful for this time you've taken to talk to me. Um, It was a real honor, and your work has had such an impact on my life. So thank you for it. Well, thank you. And, you know, I hope I've said something useful. I'll tell you what. I saw it way back when. And it was transformative for me and my way of thinking of the world. So thank you for it. The brilliant Anna DeVere Smith, a pleasure and an honor to talk with her. Someone who inspired me when I was 13 years old uh, and has continued to ever since. We're just one of the great geniuses of American theater, as you could probably tell. Twilight Los Angeles 1992 is currently showing the Mark Tabor Forum in Los Angeles. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Although I did something that always makes me feel like a king. I've maybe done it like two or three times, which is uh, the other day I flew to Oakland and back in the same day, like some sort of important businessman. I was actually just visiting my mom, but uh, I felt like a I felt like a real globetrotter. Uh, going through the Burbank airport twice in one day. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our senior producer, Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Max Fun, Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. Uh, we get some booking help from Merritt Davis. Our music is provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. The theme song at the top of the show is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team. Thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and you can find us in all those places. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.